If you've been told to pull up your socks, then make sure it's a pair of TNT socks. The TNT shop is now open at tntradio.live. Interviews, news, and analysis of the day's global events. This is Compass with Jason Olborn on today's News Talk TNT Radio. Well, hello and welcome to your global news hour. On today's show, and yes, it is November of 2023, COVID waves continue. And those paying the heaviest price are the people who took the most shots. I'll present new data from New Zealand and the Maldives. The World Health Organization has paid $250 each to victims who were sexually assaulted by its workers. Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov has given a rare English language interview and provided much needed perspective on a multipolar shift in world affairs. But first today, with the United States, United Kingdom and Russia abstaining, the UN Security Council has passed a resolution calling for extended humanitarian pauses in Gaza, but calls for a ceasefire remain unheeded. The Japanese mission to the UN has explained why Japan joined in voting for the first UN Security Council resolution to pass on the unfolding humanitarian situation in Gaza. In a post on X, the Japanese mission to the UN said that Japan voted in favour because the resolution emphasises the need to protect civilians. Japan also expressed gratitude to Malta for taking initiative to help finally craft a balanced text that could be adopted. The adopted resolution calls for urgent and extended humanitarian pauses, but not a ceasefire in Gaza. With more, here's an update from Al Jazeera's Kristen Salumi. Yes, well, Linda Thomas-Greenfield was talking about the reason the United States abstained from this resolution as opposed to voting for or against it. She said that the United States uh, supported the call for humanitarian access but was disappointed that the resolution didn't include a, a condemnation uh, of Hamas or Israel's right to defend itself. Uh, I pointed out to her that the last resolution that they vetoed also didn't include those elements, but did include humanitarian access and asked why the United States waited four weeks, uh, in during which time thousands more children died, to let it pass, essentially. And her answer didn't directly address my question, but she said that that was a political resolution and this is a humanitarian one, even though the humanitarian uh, ask for pauses is quite similar. The resolution does uh, not specify a time for these pauses. It says as needed to get aid in. Um, but nonetheless, the United States uh, now saying that it is needed, uh, the United States saying that even more scaling up is needed uh, to help the people on the ground in Gaza and that they would continue to work to get more aid to them and to work with Israel to make that happen. Israeli forces launched another raid at the Al-Shifa medical complex in Gaza City Thursday, according to a doctor inside the hospital, as Hamas rejected claims of weapons being uncovered during hours-long raids the day before. Palestinian Foreign Ministry has warned against Israel's misleading fabrications about Al-Shifa, where thousands are taking shelter, and the US has denied giving Israel a green light for the raid on the hospital in the Strip after backing Israeli claims that the medical facility was being used for military purposes. Speaking Wednesday, US National Security Council spokesperson John Kirby 
countered accusations from Hamas that President Joe Biden's administration was complicit in the raid. We did not give an OK to the military operations around the hospital, Kirby told reporters. Kirby declined to say whether Israel gave the US advanced warning of the attack during talks between Biden and Israeli PM Netanyahu on Tuesday. The US had previously stated that an intelligence assessment backed up Israel's claims that our Shifa hospital, the largest in Gaza, sat atop a large Hamas command centre. Kirby said the US remained comfortable with our own intelligence assessment. Israeli forces raided the hospital, which is sheltering hundreds of patients and thousands of displaced Palestinians early Wednesday, drawing alarm from international organisations and political leaders. Omar Zakut, an emergency room worker at the Gaza facility, told Al Jazeera that Israeli soldiers detained and brutally assaulted some of those seeking shelter at the hospital. The attack followed several days of encirclement by Israeli forces. Hospital staff said on Tuesday that they were barred from exiting the facility and they were forced to bury decomposing bodies in a mass grave. The Israeli military said its troops found an operational command centre and assets belonging to Hamas in its raids on the hospital, but has not produced any firm evidence to substantiate the claim that is a central node of Hamas operations. Israeli military spokesperson Daniel Hagari said the troops had found weapons, combat gear and technological equipment there and were continuing their search. The military also released a video that said or showed some of the materials recovered from an undisclosed building in the hospital compound, including automatic weapons, grenades, ammunition and flak jackets. Two Turkish lawyers and a former lawmaker have petitioned the government in Ankara to charge Israeli's prime minister with genocide and war crimes against his country's conduct in Gaza. The request is respected to reach the International Criminal Court, which neither Turkey nor Israel recognises. Metin Kulunk, a former member of parliament from the ruling Justice and Development Party, teamed up with attorneys Brincini and Burak Beraklu and sent the 23-page lawsuit to Istanbul's prosecutor's office on Tuesday. Today, representing the conscience of the citizens of the Republic of Turkey, we filed a lawsuit at the International Criminal Court in The Hague against the 21st century Hitler, Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu, who must stand trial for the genocide he committed in the Gaza Strip and all crimes against humanity, Kulnuk wrote on X, accompanied by the cover page of the lawsuit. Bekarog also told TASS that the Istanbul office had already forwarded the case to the Turkish Justice Ministry and will send a hard copy to The Hague, where it should arrive no later than next week. The Turkish trio has joined a growing international push to prosecute the Israeli leader over the month-long war on Hamas. Human Rights Watch said on Tuesday that Israeli attacks on hospitals and other healthcare infrastructure in Gaza amounts to war crimes and should be investigated by the ICC. Earlier this month, Algeria filed a case against Israel before the ICC, which Colombia joined. Three Palestinian human rights NGOs have done so as well. Turkey cannot officially file lawsuits before the ICC as it never ratified the Rome Statute that established the court. According to Turkish media, government bodies and NGOs can inform the prosecutor's office of crimes and ask for an investigation. However, Israel had signed the Rome Statute but withdrew in 2022. The ICC has claimed jurisdiction over Gaza and the West Bank, however, as the UN considers them Palestinian territories under Israeli occupation since 1967. 
The Israeli army has denied the allegations of war crimes, insisting that it is taking measures to avoid civilian casualties. They also accused Hamas of using hospitals, schools and other civilian sites as command centres and storing weapons inside them. It seems that the Canadian Prime Minister cannot do a thing right. With plummeting popularity, a rising star in opposition, Pierre Poiliev, gaining against him, it seems he cannot do enough in his own country to gain any support. On Tuesday, the Prime Minister Trudeau urged Israel to stop this killing of women, children, of babies in Gaza after Hamas terrorists launched monstrous attacks on civilians on October 7. The human tragedy that is unfolding in Gaza is heart-wrenching, especially the suffering we see in and around the Al-Shifa hospital. I have been clear that the price of justice cannot be the continued suffering of all Palestinian civilians. Even wars have rules. All innocent life is equal in worth, Israeli and Palestinian. I urge the government of Israel to exercise maximum restraint. As the world is watching on TV, on social media, we're hearing the testimonies of doctors, family members, survivors, kids who've lost their parents. The world is witnessing this, the killing of women and children, of babies. This has to stop. Meanwhile, Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu responded on X, it is not Israel that is deliberately targeting civilians, but Hamas that beheaded, burned and massacred civilians in the worst horrors perpetrated on Jews since the Holocaust. While Israel is doing everything to keep civilians out of harm's way, Hamas is doing everything to keep them in harm's way. Israel provides civilians in Gaza humanitarian corridors and safe zones. Hamas prevents them from leaving at gunpoint. It is Hamas, not Israel, that should be held accountable for committing a double war crime, targeting civilians while hiding behind civilians. To make matters worse, in September, Trudeau was forced to apologise after the Canadian Parliament honoured a Nazi with a stand-up ovation. If that weren't bad enough, Trudeau was run out of a Vancouver restaurant in Chinatown by pro-Palestinian, pro-Hamas protesters. Vancouver police say 100 officers were sent to a restaurant where Trudeau was dining on Tuesday night after it was surrounded by protesters chanting for a ceasefire in the Israel-Hamas war. Police said one man was arrested for assaulting an officer and another for obstruction, while social media videos showed protesters waving Palestinian flags, shouting slogans and jeering Trudeau outside the restaurant in Vancouver's Chinatown. And Taiwan's leading opposition parties have agreed to combine forces with a joint ticket in January's presidential election, consolidating their political support and boosting their chances of forming a more China-friendly government in Taipei. KMT and TPP formed their new alliance on Wednesday, agreeing to settle on a single presidential candidate rather than splitting the vote. They also agreed to form a joint government if they win election. The parties will put forward either Ko or the KMT's Hu Yu Yi as the presidential candidate on their combined ticket after analysing polling data together. The runner-up would become the vice presidential running mate. 
Taiwan's current Vice President, Lei Ching-Ti, of the ruling Democratic Progressive Party, the DPP, is polling as the leading candidate in the presidential race. A successful opposition alliance, no matter who is running as president, means it's likely cross-strait tensions will improve, as the opposition has more than a 50% chance of beating the DPP's Lei. According to local polls, National Taiwan University political science professor Wang Yi Lai told Bloomberg News, for China, either Ko or Hu taking the presidential seat will be better than Lai. Beijing's relations with the breakaway province have soured since the current president, Tsai, first took office in 2016. The acrimony has increased in recent years, with the mainland government vowing to reunify with Taipei by force if necessary, and conducting large-scale military drills in the Taiwan Strait. Tsai has hosted visits by US politicians and ramped up weapons purchases from Washington. Meanwhile, US President Joe Biden hailed his most constructive talks with Chinese President Xi Jinping Wednesday as they agreed as their first summit in a year to restore military-to-military communications and ease tensions. The leaders of the world's biggest economy shook hands and smiled as they met on a historic estate in California for their first talks in a year and wrapped up the four-hour summit with a walk in the garden. US Democrat Biden said that while he disagreed on many issues with the Chinese communist leader, whom he has known since 2011, Xi had just been straight with him during the talks on Wednesday. The move to restore a military hotline with China severed after the US House Speaker Nancy Pelosi visited Taiwan last year was critically important, he added. Miscalculations on either side can cause real, real trouble with a country like China, he said. And so I think we're making real progress there. But Xi and Biden remained far apart on the wider flashpoint of Taiwan, with the Chinese president telling his US counterpart to stop arming the island and saying the reunification was unstoppable. Beijing claims sovereignty over the self-ruling democracy and has not ruled out seizing it by force. The two sides announced a host of other agreements, including the China had agreed to tackle the production of ingredients for the drug fentanyl responsible for a deadly epidemic of opioid abuse in the United States officials on both sides set after the talks. They also agreed to hold talks on artificial intelligence, Chinese state media said. And a 10,000-seat stadium has been built for the Pacific Games, a regional multi-sport event held in a different Pacific island country every four years. Now, the Games get underway in the Solomon Islands on November the 19th, and have become a symbol of national pride in the remote southwest Pacific Island nation. It is the biggest international event ever hosted in the country. The Solomon Islands, located northeast of Australia, is an archipelago of more than 900 islands with a total population of around 734,000 people. Despite being rich in natural resources, particularly forests and timber, most Solomon Islanders live in rural areas where access to infrastructure, basic services and economic opportunities is poor. About 25% of the population lives below the international poverty line, according to the World Bank. And even in the capital, residents suffer daily power and water cuts. Meanwhile, 70% of the population is aged under 34, with only an estimated 22% of the new entrants to the job market each year likely to secure former formal employment. Given the country's immense development needs, the total cost of the event at $250 million is a major expenditure. 
Amid some concerns about the cost, the government insists existing budgets have not been affected and 80% of the game's costs have been met by international donors and bilateral partners. We only receive grants from all the countries that are supporting us. There is no loan commitment by the Solomon Islands government to leave behind for our youth or the citizens of this country to repay after the games, the NHA executive director said. China is the event's biggest financial supporter providing half the total funding, including the roughly $71 million for the construction of the stadium, plus other venues such as the aquatic centre, tennis courts and hockey field. Funding for the Games has also been provided by New Zealand, Papua New Guinea, Saudi Arabia, Korea, India and Indonesia. And coming up after the break, the World Health Organisation is exposed for heinous crimes against women. We're listening to Compass on TNT Radio. You should hear what James Freeman is talking about on the Freeman Report. Last night, I came across a letter from the NHF chief executive here in Wales in the UK. Um, I got given the letter by a whistleblower and it's addressed to the chief executives of all NHS Wales organisations. So that's quite a few people. That, That letter has gone out to quite a lot of people here, senior people here in Wales. And the letter basically says that it is disappointing that the up take of the COVID-19 injections is so low among healthcare workers, but also the general public more widely. The letter goes on to say that vaccination is the best form of defence. Now, the author is Judith Paget, who, like I said, is the NHS Wales Chief Executive. Well, Judith goes on to say that she's looking forward to hearing about interventions that have been used to raise uptake at the next NHS Wales Leadership Board meeting. That sounds a bit ominous doesn't it? Um, What interventions are you talking about, Judith? The Freeman Report and James Freeman on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. The Light is Britain's far-right conspiracy theory paper spreading hate and vicious lies. No, that's what the BBC say. The Light is the only national newspaper bringing you the real news and informed opinion on what's really going on today. You can subscribe, order copies, submit articles and read back issues on our website thelightpaper.co.uk and see for yourself why the establishment are so worried about the uncensored truth getting out to people every month. The Light Paper. Not for right, just right so far. thelightpaper.co.uk From world news to global policies and beyond, this is Compass with Jason Olborn on today's News Talk, TNT Radio. Welcome back. The World Health Organization paid $250 each to at least 104 Congolese women who were allegedly sexually abused by its staffers during the deadly Ebola outbreak in the African nation, the Associated Press reported Tuesday. The payments, totaling $26,000, were made earlier this year when Gaya Gamhemawaj, the doctor in charge of the WHO's work on sexual harassment and abuse prevention, visited the Democratic Republic of Congo to address the biggest known sex scandal in the agency's history, the outlet added, citing internal documents. Recipients were reportedly required to complete training courses designed to assist them in starting income-generating businesses in order to receive the cash. One of the abused women is said to have given birth to a baby with a disability that requires special medical care. An investigation commissioned by the World Health Organization reported in September 2021 that 21 of its employees were among 83 aid workers who sexually assaulted local women and girls while on a 2018 to 2020 
UN Ebola mission in the Democratic Republic of Congo. According to the 35-page report, the abuses, which included nine allegations of rape, were committed by both local and international workers. While dozens of women claimed to have been offered work in exchange for sex, others said they were coerced with alcohol, trapped in hospitals and forced to have sex, leaving two of them pregnant. The Commission said it found clear structural failures and an inability to manage the risks of sexual exploitation and incidences of abuse in the Central African country. Prior to that, the AP reported that senior WHO management had been made aware of the sexual misconduct in 2019 as it occurred, but did little to stop it. Last month, the Global Health Agency announced that five staff members had been sacked since 2021 in response to findings of sexual misconduct. The names of 25 other alleged perpetrators have also been entered into a UN database to prevent future employment, it added. However, the alleged victims are said to have expressed a distrust in the WHO, insisting that its efforts were not enough. According to the AP, several Congolese women who were sexually exploited have yet to receive compensation, while the institution reportedly said in a confidential document last month that about a third of the known victims were impossible to locate. It claimed that nearly a dozen others declined its offer. Those who received the $250 cash, including a young woman who now has a five-year-old daughter as a result of the incident, told the outlet that the payout was insufficient and that their main goal was to see justice served. It's not unheard of for the UN to give people seed money so that they can boost their livelihoods, but to mesh that with compensation for a sexual assault or a crime that results in the birth of a baby is unthinkable. Paula Donovan, co-director of the Code Blue campaign against sexual misconduct in the UN, is quoted by AP as saying, meanwhile, appearing on Glenn Beck's show, Ron Paul called for the World Economic Economic Forum to be disappeared, citing its ever-increasing influence and control. Well, it should be disappeared, (laughs) intellectually speaking, because, uh, yes, it is a powerful force, and they're using the same tools that I'm advocating for liberty. Uh, I mean, you take a guy like Soros and others before the World Economic Council came, that that they got a hold of the educational system and then they moved along from there. Our universities were there. And even this, oh, with COVID, it looks like they've taken over completely the medical profession, yeah. which is really sad. And scary. Uh, that, that, uh, yeah, and but at the same sense, a few people have awakened. And they they know this, and more people did. More people know what's went on during the lockdown yeah. than they did before the lockdown. Yeah, and that and they're they're looking like the American people are ready to resist that. They are the bad news, and uh, the only thing I can think of is counteract it with the good news of what liberty is all about. The Supreme Court of the United Kingdom unanimously ruled that the government's plan to send more than 24,000 refugees to Rwanda in a controversial £140 million deal is unlawful. In blocking the deal, the Apex Court upheld a ruling by a lower court over the last year that asylum claimants sent there were also at risk of being returned to their home countries, contrary to an international law principle known as non-refoulement. But before that, in a highly personal resignation letter made public on Tuesday night, Suella Braverman argued that win or lose today, Sunak's asylum strategy is unworkable. The former Home Secretary is right, but not for the reason she thinks writes Reese Klein. The Rwanda policy was unveiled 18 months ago. As we and many others have argued, the scheme was never going to stop the boats. And the Supreme Court has now confirmed that the policy is unlawful, at least in its current form. 
The onus is now on the government to set out what it believes can be done to make the policy lawful. But the judgment means the policy cannot go ahead anytime soon and not in time for the general election, most likely next year. Legalities aside, the Rwanda policy would only ever have applied to a small fraction of the people arriving in the UK by small boats. Most generous estimates suggested Rwanda could have accepted around 1,000 people, a figure dwarfed by the 27,000 people who crossed the channel this year so far. It is true Rwanda had placed no cap on the scheme, but it was unlikely to build the infrastructure required to increase capacity unless it was clear people would be sent from the UK. Regardless, that would have taken time to develop. The policy was based on the huge and hopeful assumption that it would deter asylum seekers from making the journey across the channel, even if only a small number would actually be sent to Rwanda. But there is still no evidence that this would have been the case, even had the policy been implemented without a hitch. The Supreme Court was keen to note that its judgment did not mean the government could not in the future overcome the risk that asylum seekers would be sent by Rwanda to an unsafe country known as Rafumo. But given the breadth of evidence the court cited in support of its judgment, including more than 100 examples of reformant from Rwanda, some of which occurred even after the agreement with the UK government, this would require substantial changes to the policy. Here now is part of Rishi Sunak's speech. We're going to cross live now to uh, London UK Prime Minister Rishi Sunak reacting to the Supreme Court striking down the scheme to uh, deport asylum seekers to Rwanda. ...fundamentally change our country, and I meant it. So I'm also announcing today that we will take the extraordinary step of introducing emergency legislation. This will enable Parliament to confirm that with our new treaty, Rwanda is safe. It will ensure that people cannot further delay flights by bringing systemic challenges in our domestic courts and stop our policy being repeatedly blocked. But of course, we must be honest about the fact that even once Parliament has changed the law here at home, we could still face challenges from the European Court of Human Rights in Strasbourg. I told Parliament earlier today that I'm prepared to change our laws and revisit those international relationships to remove the obstacles in our way. So let me tell everybody now, I will not allow a foreign court to block these flights. If the Strasbourg Court chooses to intervene against the expressed wishes of Parliament, I am prepared to do what is necessary to get flights off. I will not take the easy way out, because I fundamentally do not believe that anyone thinks the founding aims of the European Convention on Human Rights was to stop a sovereign Parliament removing illegal migrants to a country deemed to be safe in parliamentary statute and binding international law. And I do not believe that we are alone in that interpretation. Across Europe, other governments are following our lead. Italy, Germany, Austria are all exploring models like ours. Indeed, the UNHCR operates its own refugee scheme in Rwanda. And unlike the UK, they don't have a treaty for any of this. The news you need when you need it. Oh, you have a deep voice. TNT. Matt Boyland here with a look at your TNT headlines. There's high drama on Capitol Hill. Former House Speaker Kevin McCarthy accused of assaulting a fellow Republican in the halls of Congress. Taiwan says it still has a few more years to build up its defences against a potential Chinese invasion. And it's been revealed Israel has raised close to $8 billion in debt since the start of its war with Hamas. God, you're amazing. 
You're a much better listener than my wife. You're always there for me. I think I may be in love. Where is she? It's not what it seems. I I was talking to... Who's the tramp I heard you talking to? That was my Alexa, sweetie. Well, she sounds like a tramp. (laughs) Fall in love with news and talk all over again with your smart device. Just tell it to play. Today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Welcome back. Like virtually fully vaccinated Australia, which 96% of the country 16 years and over took the two-jab regimen, is now entering its eighth wave of COVID, rendering the effective part of safe and effective a lie. New Zealand has entered its fifth wave with calls from the usual suspects, health professionals and politicians to media commentators like Ray Hadley in Australia to go and get boosted. Let's look at New Zealand data up to November 13th for cases and hospitalisations. There were 5,944 cases recorded in the week up to November the 13th. Of these, 4,745 had received three or more shots. 807 took two, 35 took one, 235 were aged under 12 and were not eligible for shots, and 122 COVID cases had received no vaccine at all. So 91.5% of COVID cases in New Zealand last week were considered fully vaccinated. 2% were unvaccinated 12 years and up. Of hospitalisations, 70 of the 4,745 who took three or more shots were hospitalised, five out of 807 who took two shots, four out of 35 who took one shot, 13 out of the 235 children in the under 12 category, and out of 122 unvaccinated people with COVID, none went to hospital. So is it accurate to say that vaccine prevents hospitalisation and death? In the unvaccinated, certainly not. And nobody who did not get vaccinated regrets their decision, though many who say they would not have taken it unless coerced by someone else, like a boss. So of the children, one in 18 resulted in hospitalisation. Of the single shot takers, one in nine. Of the fully vaccinated with two shots, it was one in 161. But of those who took three or more shots, it reduced again back to one in 68. That is an increase in hospitalisation of 236% for those taking more shots, not less, meaning it is not effective to take more shots, despite what the government health professionals and media tell you. The reasons why they do not acknowledge that has been presented many times here before on this show and on TNT Radio in general, explaining IgG4 and ADE as ways in which the body's immune system is harmed by the vaccines and how in the case of IgG4, the body does not recognise the COVID virus when it enters the immune system, doing the opposite of what the vaccine was meant to do. Few countries are releasing COVID data that compares the vaccinated versus the unvaccinated. New South Wales stopped doing this for 2023 and was one of the last to do the comparisons. And Steve Kirsch has been working hard to get this new data out of the Maldives. In that tiny island country of approximately 453,000 people, 399,362 people took the first dose, 385,194 took the second reducing by more than half to just 167,742 who took the third dose and, wait for it, just 1,571 bothered to top up with a fourth, going from 88% first jab to 85% of the population to become fully vaccinated to just 37% of the country who took the booster and 0.35% who took the fourth shot. 
Why then such a big drop-off suddenly and virtually the entire population after three said no more? Steve Kirsch posted on X, as per our conversation, this death data from the Maldives with the name redacted works at the Maldives Health Ministry. And he said, Maldives being a small country, the death data is complete vaccine records for 2021 and 2022. We started vaccinating on the 1st of February 2021. The death rate increased by 50% within the first six months of vaccination and then increased in October when the boosters began as well. That tells us a repeated pattern of ineffectiveness. The Maldives data shows us the population was spooked and likely because people saw the death of a loved one or friend shortly after taking the jab. Meanwhile, speaking at Marjorie Taylor Greene's hearing on vaccine injury, Tom Renz was explaining who was pulling the strings on how to hold to account those who perpetrated this on the people, pointing the finger directly at the Department of Defence and the CIA regarding indemnity and the claims of safe and effective. Why have indemnity at all? Renz asks, how do you get a technology transfer to China to perform gain-of-function research without sign from these sign off from these agencies then provides information to show that a soldier gave him his medical records that showed he was treated five times in 2014 with covid vaccinations how is this possible and what does Renz want to do when someone no. got the shot they didn't get it from Pfizer or Moderna they got it from the DOD the DOD distributed this the contract with our federal government requires it to distribute this the DOD had to ensure that there was uh, absolute immunity. So before we could, if you want to sue someone right now, you're going to have to sue the DOD. Good luck. If you get through them by proving intentionality, which is very difficult without the data, which they continue to hide. Uh, this is why I'm encyclopedic in my knowledge of what occurred, because I've been trying to figure out how to sue these guys, and I have to get the data to prove the intentionality. I will tell you that I think there's a number of claims. I've looked at a RICO claim, which I think I could credibly make. I'll tell you that that claim would cost me 5 to $8 million my cost to litigate. I don't have 5 to $8 million. And if I didn't have 5 to $8 million, I'd risk sanctions because I'd be bringing the case that I couldn't manage. So there, there are mechanisms moving forward. Now, before we get to how to get around this, because, I mean, realistically, if the vaccines are safe and effective, why do they need liability shield? Why do we need 50 layers of liability for something that was so safe and so effective? Why is it that we passed law after law after law way before this whole COVID thing was going down to ensure that this sort of liability protection might be in place? And I'm going to answer this uh, because I want to bring something up that, that hasn't been touched on here. So we have the case in New York I developed the case. It's against EcoHealth Alliance for the creation of SARS-CoV-2 in the Wuhan lab. That case alleges that EcoHealth Alliance uh, worked with the CCP in the Wuhan lab and uh, created, well, this, this nightmare that we've had. Let me ask you something. Does anybody in this room believe that we could transfer the technology necessary to do that sort of genetic engineering, that sort of bioweapon development? And I say bioweapon because, remember, dual-use research under the law, bioweapon, gain of function, two sides of the same coin. Does anybody believe that we transferred that sort of technology to a CCP lab without an okay from the DOD or CIA? I got news for you. They knew exactly what was going on. We have a ton of evidence on this. There was a, there was a study, Dr. Malone could probably comment on this better than I can, but that study showed 
that there was a uh, 12 nucleotide sequence uh, that they that they found in a Moderna patent, which was a, a perfect uh, reverse match to what we have in SARS-CoV-2. That that uh, that patent was filed in 2016. Thanks, David Martin, for a lot of his patent research. But the thing that I want to tell you about, according to our case and the data that, and evidence that we've submitted, we believe that this this disease was actually developed in the mid 20 teens. But I have the military records, uh, military medical records from this individual. Do you see the date there? November 14th at Irwin ACH, Fort Riley, Kansas, COVID-19 immunization, Moderna. Five, uh, five different instances. And following this page, you'll see five different instances where this person's medical record, you see at the very top, 2014, at Irwin ACH, Fort Riley, Kansas, COVID-19 immunization by Moderna. Now, I'm not suggesting, well, I guess I am suggesting, that we, maybe we should ask why it is that this uh, this soldier was apparently seen five times in 2014 for a COVID-19 immunization. Now, I again, I don't. I'm not going to go out and tell you that this proves that this was built five, ten years ago, or that the timeline was entirely fraud. I'm going to tell you that we ought to look into it. And if we're going to ask questions, we ought to ask real questions. Our DoD and CIA were involved with this. To what extent? How long has this been involved? This was created in a lab in one of the greatest enemies to the United States of America. I'll let you fill in some blanks on the legal implications here. The lies, and remember also, I can't FOIA the DOD. I can't FOIA the CIA. I ain't going to get anywhere with that. You know as well as I do where that's going to go. The inaugural conference of Australians for Science and Freedom brings together thinkers and community leaders to share learnings, formulate plans, and help establish new and emerging networks and organisations to restore a thriving Australian society founded on science and freedom. You can join the exciting lineup of health professionals, scientists, economists, lawyers, journalists, and community leaders to discuss a range of hot issues, including healthcare policy, democracy and human rights, education, the media, and the role of grassroots organisations. The Australians for Science and Freedom Conference will be held this weekend at the University of New South Wales, High Street, Kensington, on Saturday from 8.30am, sorry, 8.30am to 6pm, and Sunday, 8.30am to 4pm. Plus, TNT will be broadcasting from the conference. You can pick up tickets now, available at scienceandfreedom.org. Coming up after the break in a rare English language interview, Russia's foreign minister spoke about Israel, possible escalation, advancement with Africa, and Russia's position on the world stage. You're listening to Compass on TNT Radio. De-weaponizing weather with reality and perspective. Well, another big climate meeting is coming up. This one is, what, COP28? And apparently its report is a real doozy. I can only imagine. But here's the crazy question. If it's COP28, is the planet in better shape as far as, oh, growing food economically overall than it was 28 years ago or whenever the first one was. So what is all the panic about? Here in the United States, the Weather Channel, I don't know why they're calling themselves the Weather Channel anymore, just call yourself the Global Warming Channel, is explaining that things are really getting out of control here in the United States. So naturally, I put on the map of where all the weather stations are around the world, and they're currently 0.16 Fahrenheit above normal. The United States has had no significant heating in the last 25 years, and yet we hear that we are warming up 
60% faster than everyone else. Now, where the heck does that come from, given the bulk of the warming is up in the Arctic? But this is the kind of stuff you're getting. And the problem is that the population is simply being bombarded with it in a consistent fashion, and there's very little resistance. So what's the moral of the story? Well, I've always told you I have deep spiritual roots and a deep belief in God, and every night I thank God for TNT and him letting me be the climate and weather watchdog. This is meteorologist Joe Bastardi, TNT's climate and weather watchdog, asking you to enjoy the weather. It's the only weather you got. Challenging the consensus and debunking the narrative. This is Viewpoint. The Caesar Rodney Election Research Institute, C-R-E-R-I, investigated Zuckerberg's favored non-profits, the Center for Technology and Civic Life, CTCL, and the Center for Election Innovation and Research, CEIR, and found nearly 99% of CTCL grants of $1 million or more in the battleground states of Arizona, Georgia, Michigan, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, Texas, and Virginia went to cities and counties which Biden was certified as winning. In some places, the funds gave Democrat-leaning areas a more than 10-to-1 advantage in election resources. A grant program for five Wisconsin cities allowed these Democrat strongholds to spend roughly $47 per voter, compared to $4 to $7 per voter in traditionally Republican areas of the state, the Amistad Project and Election Watchdog revealed. Analysis by other groups like Influence Watch and the Foundation for Government Accountability found similar discrepancies. You're with Jason Olborn and Compass on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Welcome back. Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov gave a rare English language interview with RT, pointing to a two-state solution being the final solution. Here he explains the relationship and efforts made by Russia in accordance with UN resolutions, but not implemented. He also explained Russia's understanding of Israel's efforts on security. During the last 30 years, uh, we never uh, tried to underestimate the importance of good relations with Israel and the importance of good relations with uh, Israeli uh, Arab neighbors. And we played a role uh, promoting peace on the basis of the final solution of this, of this uh, Middle East issue in accordance with the United Nations resolutions and decisions. We have been the member, a member of the quartet of international mediators from the very beginning uh, of the functioning of this, of this uh, structure. Uh, the only structure recognized officially by the Security Council as having the mandate to mediate. Uh, we were co-sponsors of the roadmap uh, which provided the specific steps to create Palestinian state uh, viable and secure uh, in, uh, I think, 15 months or so. Never implemented a resolution by consensus, never implemented. And then in 2007, I think, uh, we launched another initiative uh, trying to update the roadmap and to give it some push 
to give some push to the direct negotiations. We suggested to convene a conference uh, on uh, Israeli-Palestinian normalization and on the creation of the Palestinian state in Moscow. And this uh, proposal was again unanimously endorsed by the Security Council resolution, never implemented. Uh, you know, we always understood, and the President Putin, whenever he visits Israel, whenever he receives Israeli uh, leaders in Moscow, uh, he always emphasizes that when he first came to that place, not being president in his previous life when he worked in St. Petersburg and they had some uh, business contacts with uh, Israeli uh, colleagues. He said, when I saw Israel and its geography, I immediately understood why ironclad security was so important for Israelis. With concerns continuing to be raised that the fighting between Israel and Hamas could spark a wider war in the Middle East, Lavrov explained that he has no evidence to suggest an escalation by Lebanon or Iran. Yes, Americans say that some pro-Iranian armed groups in Syria and Iraq are trying to attack American military sites. The Russian minister said, describing such incidents as nothing new. Regional militias may be agitated by the mistreatment of Palestinians and proceed to bite the Americans and the Israelis here and there, but that does not indicate an intention by senior leadership to escalate the situation, he said. However, he warned against perceiving this restraint as weakness and a green light for Israel to have a free hand in Gaza. Several US Republican presidential hopefuls have issued calls to attack Iran. Former ambassador to the UN Nikki Haley said during a debate last week that the US should go and take out Iranian infrastructure that they are using to make those strikes with so they can never do it again, referring to the attacks on US bases in the Middle East. And Senator Tim Scott urged Washington to cut off the head of the snake, and the head of the snake is Iran and not simply their proxies. Neither Iran nor Lebanon uh, want any involvement in this, in this crisis. There is no appetite uh, from Lebanon and as far as I can judge uh, from the recent statement of Hezbollah leader Nasrallah, there is no appetite uh, for any big war unless, unless uh, provoked unless uh, Gaza is uh, no longer considered as a place where Palestinians should continue to live. And I don't see any appetite in Iran. Meanwhile, on the topic of Africa, Lavrov added, while technically no longer under colonial rule, many African nations are still suffering from an unjust economic system that extracts raw materials from the continent, predominantly for the benefit of the developed world. As an example, Lavrov cited Ugandan President Museveni, one of the foreign dignitaries present at the forum, who criticised the global coffee industry, saying that African bean growers hardly make a profit. Museveni's estimate was that they left with only $30 billion a year out of a $460 billion market, less than that earned by German firms from processing and distributing coffee. Russia's contacts with Africa came up in the interview in the context of Western attempts to turn the country into an international pariah. Lavrov joked that he could not decide whether its term was rogue state or pariah was worse, was supposed to be a worse insult in the vocabulary of Russia's detractors, but assured that they have no chance of achieving their goal of isolating Moscow. Uh, the debate indicated the awakening of Africa, though Africa awakened from colonialism long ago, uh, but 
the most popular topic at the summit was that Africa does not want any longer to be a very rich continent which does not uh, enjoy the richness it possesses. Like in the colonial times, most uh, of the resources are being pumped raw into developed countries and then processed and sold with huge profit. Lavrov was asked about Russia's position in a multipolar world, one where BRICS is more productive than the G7, where colonialism no longer holds, to which Lavrov laughed about the pariah or rogue state, asking the interviewer which was worse as the West continues to believe, in particular the US, that it controls every issue on the planet in its own interests. A strategic defeat to Russia on the battlefield, isolate Russia, make it pariah or a rogue state. What is, what is worse, pariah or a rogue state? I'm not sure which. <laughs> Uh, anyway, they were, they were calling us, you know, all names. They were announcing, uh, declaring all kinds of goals uh, to eliminate us as an influential player uh, in the world arena. You mentioned Road and Belt uh, Forum where yeah. President Putin was uh, main guest and spoke immediately after the, the host, uh, the president of China. Uh, G20 summit, uh, BRICS summit, many other events which uh, Russia attended without uh, any uh, rights uh, being, being uh, curtailed. Mm. On the contrary, at the summit of G20 in, in New Delhi, a declaration was adopted by consensus which does not condemn Russia, which does not mention even Russia when it speaks about Ukraine and other conflicts yes. in the world, which the West didn't want to notice, I mean, didn't want to mention. They want, wanted and still want uh, to Ukrainize each and every agenda of each and every international forum. And this was never going to fly. And this is not flying already. The countries of the global majority of the global south don't want uh, to allow the West uh, to continue to decide each and every uh, issue on this planet uh, on its own, in its own interests. Meanwhile, as the West is distracted or the world is distracted by Israel and Hamas, and the support for the war in Ukraine plummets in the US. Speaking with Tucker Carlson, Glenn Greenwald explained the walking back of NATO interests in Ukraine. Greenwald explains how all of this was predictable. And in typical US fashion, anyone who opposed the company line was dealt with through bullying or exclusion. Where have we heard this before? I think it's important to go back and what, remember what was said at the beginning, the propagandistic framework, not to take credit or assign blame, but to realize how often we're deceived by exactly the same emotionally manipulative tactics. We were told by the people who wanted the U.S. involved in this war, not just involved in it, but to fuel it, to prevent diplomatic negotiations from taking place with the possibility of ending the war very early on. We were told by those people that they were so concerned about Ukrainians and so 
concerned about Ukraine that the United States had to send tens of billions of dollars over there and all sorts of weaponry and flood the country with arms in order to protect Ukrainians. And anybody like the two of us and other people who stood up and said, this isn't a good idea, this is going to be counterproductive, we were accused of not caring about the Ukrainians, of cheering for the Russians, when none of that was true. All along, the point was that there was no way Ukraine could possibly win a war against Russia, a country way larger with a much better military, even if NATO is behind it. The only thing that is going to happen is that this war will be prolonged. Huge numbers of young Ukrainians and then older Ukrainians, not people who volunteered, but who are conscripts. Zelensky has been fighting with a conscript army since the beginning are going to die and at the end there's going to be a negotiation that says that Russia will end up being able to uh, protect the part of eastern Ukraine it believes had people in it who are largely Russian, Russian-speaking, ethnic Russians who are being oppressed by Kiev. They will keep Crimea. There's no way for these maximalist war uh, aims ever to be achieved. And now here we are two years later, in part because the West is just tired of funding this war. The counteroffensive that we were all told would change everything was a tremendous disaster. They barely have any people left to fight. They're now dragging 45 and 50 year olds off buses and sending them to the front. And the United States has a brand new war that it seems more excited over. And now they're finally telling the Ukrainians, and so is NATO, look, the gig is up. It's time for you to sit down at the negotiating table. And we're now in a position where NATO has to beg Russia to be happy to keep 20% of Ukraine, which is what they've controlled pretty much without any change for the last year or even year and a half as tens of billions of dollars were wasted and thousands upon thousands of lives were extinguished. They've been saying for the last several months as American support for this war is eroding, oh look at how great this war is. We don't have to lose any of our lives. We're just having Ukrainians die and we're just spending a bunch of money but no Americans are dying, only Ukrainians for this goal of weakening Russia. They were the ones who didn't care about the Ukrainians. They saw Ukrainians as pawns that they were willing to sacrifice, and that's exactly what they did. It's really obscene. Tucker then asked what he said would be a rhetorical question. Should the media apologize? The biggest problem with our political media culture is that there is no accountability. So many of the loudest voices urging the United States get involved in this war and attacking and demonizing anybody who was opposed as being Russian agents or unpatriotic or whatever, were, they didn't come from the same ideological camp. In many cases, they were literally the very same people who did exactly that after 9-11, who anybody who stood up and said, I'm against the Patriot Act, or I have concerns right. about NSA spying, or I don't think we should invade Iraq, or drone bomb countries all over the world, the David Frums and the Bill Crystals and the Cheney family, those were the people standing up and saying, anyone opposed to our wars are unpatriotic, they're on the other side, and none of those people ever paid a price for what they did, lying the country into the war in Iraq, destroying a country of 26 million people that gave rise to ISIS. They, in fact, all got promoted. Jeff Jeffrey Goldberg helped sell the lie. He was one of the main people in the media selling the lie that al-Qaeda was responsible with Saddam Hussein for planning the 9-11 attack. He's now the editor-in-chief of The Atlantic. They get promoted for these lies. And so there won't be any accountability. These very same people, Victoria Newland, are all still in power and they're going to continue to use these tactics because they never pay a price. To the contrary, they, ended up, they end up getting rewarded for it. And a man has been arrested on suspicion of manslaughter over the death of ice hockey player Adam Johnson, whose neck was cut during a match. The Nottingham Panthers player was hit in the neck by a skate during a match against the Sheffield Steelers on the 28th of October. 
29-year-old was taken to hospital where he was pronounced dead. Post-mortem confirmed he died as a result of a fatal neck injury, South Yorkshire police said. For said detectives arrested the suspect on Tuesday, adding that he remained in custody. Well, that concludes today's edition. Up next is Chris Smith. Thanks for listening to Compass with Jason Olborn here on TNT Radio.